This is episode 182 with running coach and movement specialist, the founder of Running Reborn and author of The Lost Art of Running, Mr. Shane Benzie. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and the episode you're about to listen to features the work of Shane Benzie, a coach and movement specialist who has a very unique perspective on running form. You're sure to learn more about technique today, so be sure to take notes, and don't forget to forward this episode to those runners you know who love talking about form. But before we start, I want to make sure we're all running the same pace here. On this show, you can expect conversations between me and the thought leaders in the running industry, the coaches, performance psychologists, elite athletes, registered dietitians, authors, and physical therapists, all who can help you elevate your running to new heights. Because when you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a wiser and more productive athlete. By the way, the Strength Running YouTube channel has tens of thousands of subscribers and hundreds of videos on weightlifting for runners, mindset training, how to run with better form, and a lot more. Search us on YouTube, subscribe, and you'll see every video we publish on a weekly basis. And of course, if you've never visited our website, this is where it all began, strengthrunning.com. For more than 10 years, we've been helping runners level up their training, race faster, prevent more injuries, and get stronger. You'll find our award-winning blog, our free email courses, and the full library of training programs and coaching services to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. And I couldn't have made this episode without the support of Exoskin, our newest sponsor. They make seamless running apparel right here in the US of A that uses a new knitting technology that works in all weather conditions. I've been wearing some tights and a long sleeve shirt when it's been cold here in Denver, and they're incredible at keeping me warm. But they also dissipate heat, so you can use any of their gear in the summer too. Check out all of their apparel at exoskin.us. And use code SR at checkout to save 20% on your order. All right, our guest today is Mr. Shane Benzie, a former ultra runner who's been coaching for more than 10 years. He spent time working with thousands of runners one-on-one in Ethiopia, and in fact, all over six continents. He's only missing Antarctica, but I trust he'll get there soon. He's a movement specialist, the founder of the coaching platform Running Reborn, and author of the Amazon bestseller The Lost Art of Running, A Journey to Rediscover the Forgotten Essence of Human Movement. Shane is one of the more unique perspectives on running form and how we think of ourselves as athletes. In this conversation, we're going to talk more about Shane's travels around the world and what he's learned from that, why the Western world can sometimes impede movement, subconscious mistakes we make, why our bones exist in a sea of tension, how to use elastic energy, his favorite form cues to help reinforce more economical technique, and more. By the way, if this topic is interesting to you, then don't miss our free form cues download at strengthrunning.com cues. You'll get my three favorite cues, how and when to use them, and the training strategies that make them easier to learn. Now, without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Shane Benzie. Hey, Shane. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for the invite. 
Yes. Well, I think this is going to be an interesting conversation about movement and running form. Uh, you have quite the background, Shane. So uh, maybe we can start there and, and talk a little bit about how you got to where you are today. Can you give us maybe the Cliff Notes version of maybe the major things in your life that has informed your coaching philosophy and how you approach running up until today? Sure. Uh, so so about 10 years ago, I was a, a, an ultra runner. So uh, basically running long distances and I've done stuff up to kind of 180 miles straight. Um, and as an ultra runner, I was kind of experiencing, I think, two challenges, which I see in runners all the time now while I'm coaching. And those two challenges were, I, I just seemed to be constantly getting injured. I was always recovering from one injury just to kind of stumble into another. It always felt as though I was just dodging injuries or recovering from them. And I wasn't really uh, getting any better. I wasn't actually getting any faster either. So those two things were kind of eroding my enjoyment of, of my running a little bit. And so I decided to go on, on, a, on, a, on a journey to find a better way to run because I was actually pretty fit. Uh, and I'd bought all the equipment you could ever buy. I had all the gear, so I couldn't buy any more gear to get me out of trouble. So I thought, right, it must be the way I'm running, the way I'm moving that uh, is causing these injuries and actually stifling my progress. So I went on a journey myself, really, to find a better way for me to run. And, you know, it was pretty difficult because everything was based on treadmills. Uh, and everything was also based on kind of these biomechanics or our traditional view of biomechanics, which didn't really it kind of confused me almost rather than enlightened me, really. Um, but I enjoyed the journey nonetheless and got more and more fascinated with movement. And in the end, I thought, well, do you know what? This, I, this is what I want to do. And so I actually went off and qualified as a running coach. So I thought, right, you know, this is really interesting I, and I want to learn more and I want to I, I want to share that knowledge. I went off and qualified as a running coach and in doing that kind of studied biomechanics and, and movement in that way became a coach and really enjoyed that and uh, but there were still lots of big gaps in my knowledge you know when I was watching people on tv on the olympics and stuff like that they seemed to just move in a very different way than I'd been coached to coach actually and so that kind of so I had similar kind of frustrations with my coaching that I did with my running and you know I felt there were big gaps in my knowledge so I actually and one day a really good runner came to see me and said and they moved really well and I kind of said you know how do I go faster what do I need to go to to go faster and I thought you know what I'm I'm kind of curious about that myself because most of my coaching had been based on not making sure that people didn't get injured and you know not 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 creating too much impact and just being moving efficiently over the ground um whereas this person was moving very very well but wanted to go faster and I just didn't have the tools to help them and that was the kind of the final straw so I thought right there are big gaps in my knowledge so I need to fill those gaps in and so I down tools and I just thought right do you know what I'm going to go and hang out with the best runners in the world or what I perceived as being the best runners in the world. And I and I kind of looked to East Africa, to the Ethiopians and the Kenyans, which I think many people do, and they certainly are great runners. And so I just kind of packed a bag, and I went out to Ethiopia, to a place where I'd heard there was this amazing coach, um, to see if I could kind of spend some time with him and his runners. Um, I managed to, I just turned up, and I managed to do that and spend about a month there. And that started to change everything. And I stopped becoming 
I stopped seeing myself as a running coach and started to see myself as a movement coach because suddenly I could see running was about beautiful movement, not just this blood and gut sport that, that I would kind of was treating it as. Yeah, and maybe we can talk about some of the differences there, the differences between some of those old coaching methods that you were brought up on, that you learned, that still presented you with all these gaps in your knowledge, and then what you learned from the Ethiopians when you went over there and you spent a month there. What are some of the big differences in you know, the approach to movement, the approach to running form? Um, or in other words, you know, what did you learn when you were there? I think, you know, if I could put, if I could, I wouldn't want to put 10 years work into one paragraph, but if I could sum up one of the big things, the big differences is that in, in Europe and, and, and may well be in, in the US as well, when we, we see good movement, we see efficient movement as the ability to move over the ground and save energy or not use energy. Okay. Whereas what I've seen on my travels with beautiful movement is the ability to move over the ground and create energy, elastic energy. Our relationship with the ground has a huge bearing on how we move. Now, there are, I think there are lots of urban myths with running and one of them is that impact is bad for us. And I kind of get it. It's intuitive because if we're, you know, if we, and I, goodness knows I've had enough injuries in my time and I would have blamed those injuries on impact. But, I, you know, I don't think impact has ever run, injured a runner ever. It's mismanagement of impact that injures us. We're actually designed to move over the ground and use the two and a half times our body weight that's coming back at us to turn into elastic energy to then throw us forward. But we're all running around trying not to create impact, which is essentially pulling the teeth on the very thing that propels us. And one of the other big urban myths I found with running, I think, is that air or oscillation or bounce is bad in our running. So we're all running around trying to suck ourselves down to the ground uh, and create, not create impact. But if there's no air, there's no ability to cycle those legs underneath us or create any forward trajectory within that air to give ourselves a nice stride length. So I think that was one of the big things that I first saw in Africa was runners that were making a beautiful contact with the ground and were creating air. And it was those two things that actually was one of the big things that was creating this amazing propulsion that we just I just wasn't seeing anywhere else. This definitely reminds me of, you know, the old advice to land softly, to run softly on the ground. And I've always thought that that was somewhat good advice if you're a, an incredibly injury-prone athlete. But at the same time, you're never going to run fast if you are always trying to run softly. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Why is impact not necessarily an enemy of runners? Why do we actually want impact forces? Well, we want impact. So so basically, you know, I, I, I see our body in, a, in probably in a different way to many people and and certainly differently from the way that I was coached to coach we I, I think with the biomechanical view we tend to think of the the body if we took the skin off of the body we tend to see this kind of skeleton um, and we all the thing is in, when we see the skeleton we always see it in, a, in an upright way supporting its own structure it's always got a grin on its face and it looks like it could just kind of walk off of the screen or walk out of the glass case if it was in, in, a, in a science museum or something like that so we, we could be in, in a, a six-year-old's biology book or a 17-year-old's biology book or 
cartoons, all everything depicts a skeleton depicts a skeleton as this structure that supports itself and can kind of look like it could just move around on its own. And so I think we could be forgiven for thinking that our that skeleton is just a series of levers that propels us with muscles. But actually I see the skeleton in a completely different way because I see the skeleton as 206 bones that essentially float in a sea of elasticity in our body. So we have something called our fascial system, so tendons and ligaments, and then everything has coated with myofascia. We have fascia running all through our body, which essentially makes us very kind of synergistic, connected, fluid and elastic in our movement. And so when we move, when we hit the ground, and you've got about two and a half times your body weight coming back at you. So for the people that are listening, when they're out running tomorrow, when their foot hits the ground, it's there or thereabouts, about two and a half times your body weight coming back at you. It changes with speed, but that's about what it is. That impact coming back loads your elastic system. And then your elastic system has a frequency of creation, store and release. So once it soaks up that impact, it then stores it and then turns it into elastic propulsion. We would never move in that way if we assumed that the skeleton was this structure, because then you would almost be scared of breaking it or shattering it. But if we can buy into the fact that we're very elastic in our movement and our skeleton actually just free flows in a sea of tension in that elastic system, it would allow us to be far more excited about interacting with the ground. I think one of the best examples of this might be the Achilles tendon and how much energy return you get from a good foot plant and a really economical uh, form when it comes to, you know, the the calf, the soleus and the Achilles tendon, because, you know, the Achilles tendon might be the large one of the larger tendons in our body. And uh, I believe it returns. I, I, I think if I would, I have to look this up. So <laughs> let's uh, fact check me after the podcast. But I believe it's about 40% of the energy is returned when you're running and you have an efficient kind of, um, uh, you know, foot toe off. I don't even really yeah. like to use the word toe off. I, no, I don't think that's totally no, accurate. Definitely not. Yeah, no, I'm not keen on toe off either. We could discuss that. Yeah, absolutely. Let's dive into that. Why is toe off inappropriate? And I kind of know the answer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, for me, you know how we talk a lot about how the foot lands yeah so you, know, you pick up any running magazine and it will talk about footfall and heel strike forefoot midfoot i talk about a tripod landing um but, it, but so we talk a lot about how the foot leaves the uh, lands but how the foot leaves the ground is incredibly important because to get this beautiful air that i'm always kind of waxing lyrical about um we need to leave the ground well so um, and I think the first, for, again, for people who are running around, maybe listening to this podcast, you know, the first thing you need to ask yourself when uh, you're running is when your foot leaves the ground, actually, do you pull your foot away from the ground or do you actually use the ground as a lever and push off? That's the first thing to ask ourselves, because many runners will pull their foot away from the ground. I think sometimes that's a result of not really wanting to make too much contact with the ground and wanting to get our foot away from it. I believe that we do need to use the ground as a lever to help to get ourselves in the air. Now, if we do that, if we push off from our toes, they're really not up for that job. 
They're really not up for that job at all. And that will overload the, the Achilles soleus and gastrocnemius. They, they, they can't really do that job. The toes are, the big toe is always going to be the last thing to leave the ground because that's stabilizing us and balancing us as we go. But I believe the push off should come from more of the, I, I actually call it a tripod within a tripod. Um, but if you imagine the line between, so the, the ball underneath the ball of your big toe to underneath across to your little toe, and then a, a kind of a triangle coming in more in the uh, middle of the foot. So the push off actually comes before the toes get engaged because I don't think the toes can create that spring. Maybe if you were sprinting for a very short period of time, you could do it. But for runners that are out there for any longer than about 400 meters, I, I think towing off is, is not economical and will cause problems. Yeah. And after all, the, the toes are not exactly the, the biggest, the strongest muscles in the no, body. Exactly. You're not going to get a lot out of the toes. <laughs> no, you're, you're running on two cylinders. You, you know, you really, you really couldn't do it. Um, but it's intuitive and and, it, and, they, and they feel more springy. And if you were skipping, you'd be springing around very much on the front of the foot. And I think it's intuitive to think that that's the springy part of the foot. But really, yeah, we, we, we shouldn't be doing it. And I think if you watch video of somebody, it, it almost looks as if they might we might toe off because the big because the big toe is the last thing to leave the ground. But really, the work should have been done by then. And if we push off that split second early before the toes get engaged, I think it means the glutes are more likely to do the work rather than uh, that, 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 that kind of flimsy posterior chain at the back of the leg. Now, Shane, you've said in the past that you think the Western world has impeded our movement. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's huge. I think, I think there are two there are, well, I think there are many influences on our movement, but I think the two biggest influences that I've seen over the 10 years of my research are our perception of our movement, i.e. when we're running, what we perceive is happening as we're running has a big influence on how we run. We can, we can have a chat about that in a second. And then also, yes, how we spend our day has a big emphasis on how we run. Because I believe that our skeleton is essentially floating in a sea of tension the sea of tension that we put our body in during the day is going to create the posture that we that we run with after that. So, you know, you will only ever run the way you stand or sit. You don't stand or sit the way that you run. And I guess the way the world is today, we certainly spend a lot of time sitting in front of a little square box called a computer or an iPad and uh, with a very heavy head kind of bent over creating this really strange sea of tension for ourselves um, which we've then got to attempt to get beautiful height in when we want to then do something dynamic and that's a real challenge and again if we believe our skeleton is more of a structure you could almost with a bit more confidence sit down all day in a slightly hunched position stand up at the end of the day and lengthen your spine and then just walk off beautifully tall but it isn't like that because the, the, the fascial system that's creating that sea of tension is very malleable and will kind of mold itself to, to your everyday position. Um, and I see that a, a lot with athletes. And I, and I think, you know, with the lockdown situations we've had and people working from home and stuff like that, I think potentially a lot of people have put in, been put into even more curious positions because we've had to make do with what we've got. So, you know, in the book, in my book, I kind of, I kind of, with British, we talk about tea, drinking tea. And so I, we, I say, you know, you essentially run 
the way you stand when you make a cup of tea. What you do in your everyday life creates that sea of tension. Now, if I go to, I spend a lot of time around the world spending time with tribes and indigenous people as well as athletes. Um, and one of the big differences I see when they move beautifully is that they don't have this situation where they're sat all day for, for, for many, many hours. Um, but you can turn this on its head. I mean, that sounds a bit doom and gloom, but actually you can turn this on its head. I mean, I'm talking to you now from my standing desk. So if I came, if, if I came into the office today, this morning, because it's the end of the day, I say, if I was stood on tripod feet all day, with a nice lengthened spine, a neutral pelvis so my core is engaged, my head up with my eye line on the computer, breathing into the bottom third of my lungs, I'm training for nine hours because my dynamic movement is just gonna be an extension of that. Whereas if I came in, slumped down, all weight on one side of my body, head slightly down, I'm detraining for nine hours. Well, Shane, now you're making me feel bad because I'm also at my standing desk, but I'm sitting down at it. I can <laughs> so, see you just shuffling about a little bit there nervously. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, I, I do have this interesting stool that that turns all the way around and it rocks. So I, I'm always kind of in, in, mm. in an imbalanced state. So I kind of have to keep myself up or I'll just fall over here. That, and that's good. I mean, I do a lot of work with osteopaths and I do CPD work with them where I kind of coach them to uh, video their patients dynamically so they can see what they're doing. And, and an osteopath would say to me, you know, there's no such thing as bad posture as long as you're not in it for more than about 20 minutes. So I think you're right. You know, if we keep moving, that's good. But it's very easy when you sit down in a chair for a couple of hours to pass and we just don't really move at all. Um and so it is a challenge, but I think it's one that we can really kind of take ownership of. Um, and so if you can, I mean, don't throw away your chair, because if you just try and stand for nine hours when you haven't done it before, that can be really tiring. So keep hold of the chair because you may have to kind of swap between the two. But there's no doubt that, A, if you want to be a better athlete or actually if you just want to live a better a better standard of life, certainly as you as you get older, if you can spend more time weight bearing, it's it's a huge investment in in your in your quality of your life, bigger than we would ever imagine. Now, Shane, you also mentioned uh, the perception of movement and how that can impact our movement when we actually go out there and running, and that's how a big difference between maybe us here in the Western world and elsewhere around the world. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, so our perception of our movement is, so basically if, if we're running along, what we envisage happening as we're running influences that. Now you could say, well, like, you know, I just run, I don't have a perception of movement. We all do, even if it's a subliminal one, and we are kind of working off of that. And again, our our, in the Western world, I think our perception of our movement is one of this biomechanics thing where the skeleton is a structure and we kind of see ourselves moving as a series of levers. And so the clue's almost in the word. It would make us feel relatively mechanical and we would move in a mechanical way. Whereas if we have this perception that uh, we're 206 bones floating in a sea of elasticity, then and if we get beautifully tall, I mean, I use one of these to talk about movement. It's it's a child's toy, uh, but it is actually a tensegrity model. Okay, and so the concept of tensegrity or bio tensegrity for us as humans is the wood 
is our bones and the elastic stuff holding this toy together is our fascial system. You can see that no bone touches another bone. And actually, as we move, our skeleton free flows in this sea of elasticity. It's a very fluid thing. Well, if I take this toy and put height into it, I now load that elastic system. Now, any movement that I make with it has elastic recoil in it. If I was to put my head down and bend from the waist, I've now pulled the teeth on the elastic system. The elastic system is now not really working. And so now muscles would have to do the propulsion. So if you can buy into the fact that actually your elastic system creates the sea of tension in your body, not your skeleton, you'd be very excited and inspired to run with height in your body and get into elegant positions to load that elastic system and allow it to make you more powerful. And, you know, it's really interesting because if you watch just about any sport in the world, athletes, whether it's hitting a tennis ball, hitting a golf ball, swimming, dancing, whatever it is they might do, they get themselves into these beautiful positions to create recoil, to throw or hit that ball harder. And yet when we run, we kind of just plod along a little bit without really trying to get ourselves into beautiful positions. It's amazing. Yeah. And how can we take some of this new knowledge here? How can we take this and and positively impact our own running? So if we recognize that our bones are kind of floating in the sea of tension, if we recognize that impact force is not necessarily a bad thing, that we actually need it to run faster because so much of our speed is dependent upon that energy return, how can we then incorporate this into our training? How can we avoid some of the, the big mistakes that we've been talking about? Well, you know, I, when I, with, my, with my coaching and my research, I use a lot of technical equipment, uh, and I, but also a lot of my work is done with video analysis, okay, because it's very important for me to, to see how, how people move. We've often moved, you know, our perception of our movement is often very different to the way we actually move. If anyone's run past a shop window and you look in, you don't always notice that that's the person that is you because we often move in a different way. <laughs> I don't know, Shane. I think I look like an Olympic gold medalist and I'm just going to continue <laughs> believing that. You do that. Absolutely. Listen, do that. It's all about confidence. It's all about positive thinking. <laughs> <laughs> but for me, sadly, I don't see an Olympic champion looking back at me. So our perception can be very different. But, you know, we all have the ability to video ourselves running or to buddy up with someone. Everybody pretty much these days has something in their pocket they can just pull out and it has video technology on it, doesn't it? We all have phones or you could use a tablet to do this. So what, what you can do straight away to start taking ownership of your movement is to go out, buddy up with another runner, because I think the power of the group is incredibly important. You know, we're far better as a group. And if we can buddy up together and video each other, if you and I buddied up, we could go out, video each other running, and then look at that video in a meet, and from the side, from the back, from the front, a few different speeds. It would take five minutes to do that. And straight away, you would have a really good perception of now how you're moving for good, or for that. Yeah. So immediately you're starting to understand your movement. And then you can start to take these thought processes in. Now, you know, you're a coach. I'm a coach. We need, we need, you know, people, we are coaches because people need coaching. 
you know it's it's we, we, that that knowledge needs to be passed on what i've been working with i so i i wrote the book in a, in a in an attempt to get people thinking about these things and to give them some uh, instruction as to how they can take ownership of the movement and i actually i've actually taken that one step further now and created a a website where it has lots of uh, kind of downloadable videos and, and and thought processes behind the videos and the idea is you go out video yourself running and then have a look at these videos to see what you're doing compared to what we should be doing and you can immediately start to identify what it is you need to work on and then go out start to work on these things with those instructions and then kind of re-video yourself and start to take ownership of that movement and that's a a really powerful way of doing it because probably 75 percent of my work is based around videoing people and showing them the video and working with them on it but this way far more people can get involved with that yeah and if someone videos themselves and you know they're they're taking a look at their form that's on video what might be some things that to you are maybe red flags or some very clear things that someone should be working on? Is it some of the things that we might've already heard about? Like, is it cadence? Is it foot strike? Is it overall posture? Uh, what, what are some of the things that you're looking at? Well, let's pick three big ones that maybe people could li- go out and do tomorrow and, and really think about and, and our big gains as well. So the first one is the head position. Yeah. Our, that position of our head is absolutely fundamental. So the human head, when it's on top of the body with kind of good equilibrium, it weighs five kilos or 12 pounds. Are you, are you pounds or kilos? I'm pounds, but I can, uh, I can go back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do pounds. So the head weighs 12 pounds. Okay. So when it's up eye line on the horizon, it weighs 12 pounds. For every inch forward it comes, it weighs another 10 pounds. So if you're running along, looking down at the sidewalk with the head down three inches, it's now quadrupled in weight. That's, that's like, like going out for a run with a small child or a big dog on your back because it's your spine that has to take that extra weight. Also, your inner ear, the vestibular area, that is responsible for a lot of your balance and your spatial awareness. If your head is down, then that is compromised. And this elastic, fascial, connective tissue that I talk about runs continuously from your toes up into your skull. So if your head is down, you're losing vital centimeters of tension in your elastic system as well. So if you go out running tomorrow, ensure that you have your head up with your eye line on the horizon. That means weighs a quarter of what it would do. It means your balance and spatial awareness is better. And it's the last chain in your elastic system. Of course, you have to look down sometimes to make sure that you're not going to run into something or step on something or, you know, but it's the default position of the head. It should be up, looks down and then defaults back up. Whereas what we tend to do is run just looking down, look up every now and again to see where we are. And then it defaults back down again. That can be an absolute game changer. It's amazing what a difference that can make. Yeah. And that seems to be one of the things where, you know, you're, you're on one end of the chain, you're at the top of the chain. So if you can fix something either at the top of the chain or at the bottom of the chain, it's going to iron out a lot of things in between. Huge, huge. I mean, one of the, one of the things I became because of this biomechanics things, we like to put thing in, things into compartments. That's part of, uh, part of it. And people are always talking about the hip flexors and getting, getting good tension into their hip flexors. Well, actually the way I look at the body 
the sternocleidomastoid muscle, that big kind of muscle in our neck, I, you know, I think that's a hip flexor. Because if there isn't tension in that, then there isn't going to be tension in the, the traditional view of our hip flexors. The body is just one continuous thing. Yeah, it isn't a series of blocks on top of each other. It's one continuous thing. And if we don't get beautiful height into that, then none of them are going to work to their potential. And if we can really buy into that, you don't have to plead with people or give them a hard time about running tall and getting elegant positions. They want to because they want to accentuate what they now know. And the head is the last part of that chain. So it's super important, super important. So you've mentioned head position as one of the big three uh, improvements to make with your form. What are the other two? So the other two, so I would say foot contact, it, footfall is very, very important. I advocate a tripod landing. So essentially the two points of the tripod that we were talking about, underneath the big toe and underneath the little toe, and then the tripod would finish with the heel. So the whole of the foot coming down at the same time. So I would get people to think about their foot essentially as the interface between them and the ground. Okay. And like any good interface, it, what happens behind it is only as good as that interface. And that interface has five big tasks to sort out for us. If we get that tripod landing, the whole of the foot coming down at the same time, that creates good stability. That's what tripods do, don't they? They create stability. So if we get that landing, we create instant stability. There are a quarter of a million nerve endings on the bottom of our foot. If we get that foot landing in that way, we utilize all of those nerve endings very, very quickly and get as much information from those nerve endings as we can flooding up into the body, telling us through extra receptors how hard we've hit the ground and what the ground felt like. And then through proprioceptors, telling us our spatial awareness and our perceived rate of exertion, how hard we're trying. The, there are, our feet are our antennae. There are information-giving things as we move through an environment. Also, we have this beautiful thing called the plantar fascia, this beautiful piece of elastic on the bottom of the foot. If we land the foot with that tripod landing, we load that plantar fascia effectively. And if you look at a foot, if you, if you kind of think about the foot, the arch of the foot gives the foot essentially a dome shape. And so if we land on that tripod, that dome shape dissipates the impact that's coming back at us. So remember, we said impact is good, providing we manage it and use it and turn it into elastic energy. So the dome shape of the foot allows us to take that impact, dissipate it, and turn it into elastic energy. And then where that tripod foot lands in relationship to our body will determine how much we decelerate. So I think with running, I don't know how it is with you guys, but with running, we've got into a a place where we see heel strike out in front of us as a break and landing more underneath us on a soft knee as not breaking. But I think that's a bit black and a bit white because if you came off of your heel, you might be forgiven for thinking that your work is done and now you don't have to think about anything because I'm not breaking anymore. So I don't think of foot contact as breaking or not breaking. I think of foot contact in the realms of deceleration, and then it's how much you decelerate and the trajectory of that deceleration. 
So a lot of my research is based on putting sensors on runners and measuring that deceleration in G-forces and then also measuring impact in, in, in Newtons. And so actually the faster runners are the ones that decelerate more because, again, they're creating more deceleration, which creates more elastic energy, which throws you forward. So it's not always about getting – if you're just trying to get that foot right underneath you, then actually – you're, you're going down the realms of not creating the impact and not creating the air. Too little deceleration actually means you're pulling the teeth on your propulsion as well. So the game never ends because you're always thinking about how much deceleration you should create and whether it's good deceleration turning into elastic energy or negative deceleration coming back at you. So how the foot lands and where it lands will determine that. So there's five really big things there that if you just get that tripod landing going on, you can uh, you can really enjoy the benefits of those. You know, you mentioned the cue run tall, which happens to be one of my favorite running cues to help people with their form. Because, yeah. you know, it's one of those things that does stretch you out. It makes you taller. And, it, and I think it helps you with your head position so that you're not leaning it to the side or to the front or to the back. Are there any other form cues that you find are particularly helpful in reinforcing some of these good form habits with runners? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think a lot about this and, and for the book and for the coaching site, I've come up with this thought process of something called a center line. Okay. So if you imagine the center line runs from your belly button up through your abdomen, up through the chest, underneath your chin to the top of your head. So it's a continuous line. It's a made-up line. It's not a line of elasticity. It's a made-up line, and I call it your center line. So when you run, I get runners to think about opening up that center line and putting a bow into that center line, almost like pulling the string back on a bow and arrow. The more you pull it back, the, far, the, the, the further that arrow goes. By getting that bow into your center line, you get your upper body over your center of gravity. So gravity becomes your friend. And actually, you get nice and tall doing it. And actually, because you've opened up that bow, you've actually created even more surface area in your elastic system. So you are literally like, it's just like loading a bow and arrow. So it's a very easy thing to think about um, that can be incredibly effective. And actually, by opening that bow, you always just get you just also get those hips just that little bit further forward as well, which is good. And you've got more chance of getting that pelvis into a neutral position, which engages your core. Do you recommend that runners focus on any certain cadence? And uh, does it depend on the type of run or workout that they're going on? Yeah, this is a good one. This is, a, this is an interesting one. So and cadence gets talked about a lot, doesn't it? And and I think it's it's the it's the running dynamic that we've been able to monitor for the longest, and it's the one that most people can. Most devices will allow you to to look at cadence. They might not tell you your vertical oscillation, stride length, ground contact time, or vertical ratio, but they will allow you to look at your cadence. So most people can anecdotally tell you what their cadence is, and I think the magic number tends to be one eighty. That's what the, the, that's the number that everybody is the holy grail of uh, of cadences. Um, but you know, I think it's interesting because I think cadence has been kind of slightly hijacked over the last twenty years, maybe, um, and has been used to correct form. Okay, so.
So I think certainly in in Europe, um, I, I've worked with over three thousand runners one to one, where I've taken where I've monitored their data of things like cadence and and all of that kind of stuff. And of those three thousand runners, the average cadence for those three thousand runners was one hundred and sixty three. Okay, and eighty four percent of those land on a heel on a straight leg, so they're slightly overstriding with a slow cadence. And we don't we don't we don't want to land on a straight leg on a heel for all the reasons we've discussed with the tripod landing. So what coaches have started to do to combat that or to change that is to get people running with a faster cadence to shorten their stride to make sure that they don't overstride. But now they've got a very, very short stride length. And the moment they try and run fast, they're just going to go back into overstriding again. So it's a bit like sticking a plaster over a fracture. It isn't really solving the problem. It's a quick fix on stopping someone overstriding. But now they're just moving in a very mechanical way, getting their leg, un- you know, trying to get their leg underneath them. The reason we, sh- I believe we should get excited about cadences. You remember when we said you hit the ground and you've got two and a half times your body weight coming back at you? That impact coming back at you creates a load of elastic energy. Well, that elastic energy, you know, has a frequency. Everything has a frequency and your elastic energy does. So you hit the ground, create the elastic energy. The foot passes underneath you on the ground while it's stored. And then as the foot leaves the ground, it fires. So if you run at the right cadence, you synchronize in with the elastic frequency of your body. And I believe that cadence is 175 to 185. I think that's the zone that we should be in to sync in with that elastic energy. There needs to be more research on it. There's no doubt about that. But certainly with the work I've done over the, with those 3,000 runners, coaching them over a period of time and changing their cadence, I think there's a definite benefit there. So that's really why I think cadence is important because we want to join in with the natural elastic frequency of a human's body. Now, I frequently get the question of my cadence is low, I'm trying to increase it, but every time I try to increase my cadence, I inevitably increase my overall running pace and my heart rate increases and I turn an easy run you know, into a, a much more difficult run. How do you go about trying to run with a quicker cadence while at the same time not actually running any faster? Sure, it's a challenge, eh? So think of, if you were on a bike, if you were on a push bike, and you would have the cog that the chain kind of goes around. Yeah. So you'd have the cog and then you'd have your gears that you could change up and down. So think of your, when you're running, think of your cadence as your cog and your stride length as your gears. Okay. So when you're running, if you want to run slower, you wouldn't want to drop your cadence lower than 175 because we'd always want to be in that fascial zone if we could, because that creates free elastic energy. So to go slower, we would try not to decrease the cadence. We would just decrease the stride length. And to go faster, we would try and keep pretty much the same cadence, but lengthen our stride out. So our stride is what denotes our speed, not how quickly we turn our legs over. I think a lot of runners try to get that long stride. And I think, you know, if you watch a pro runner flying down the home stretch of a track, their legs are just flying out behind them. You know, it's like poetry in motion to any huge running nerd. But 
I think when runners actively try to get that long stride, that's when they run into those problems of overstriding because in their brain, they're thinking, well, I want a long stride. So I'm going to reach out in front of me. I'm going to cover more ground to get that longer stride. Where's the disconnect here? How do we get the long stride without overstriding? Yeah, one seems to counteract the other, doesn't it? You can't ha- you can't have both. But actually, you know, you can. So, so what a, if you watch that beautiful runner running down the home straight and actually slow it down? What you're actually seeing is the runner leaving the ground, so pushing off and going into the air. Okay, they've pushed off from their inner tripod. I hope. Yeah, to give them that nice spring. So they're now going into the air and their leg does come out in front of them. But whilst they're going forwards through the air, they're actually circling and cycling their legs underneath them. So you could actually have a three meter stride length and you wouldn't overstride because while you're in the air, the leg circles back underneath you to land and give you that tripod landing. And so this is where air and bounce and oscillation become very useful, because if you're trying to lengthen your stride, but suck yourself down to the ground, you can only land on a heel out in front of you. And, and you know, I, I have to say a lot of people around the world are running, but with a walking gait. So a human is designed to land on its heel on a relatively straight leg. Um, and if we're not careful, that's how we end up running. The difference between running and walking is when we run, we get air. And when we walk, one foot is always on the ground. So we run, we get air, but we do it with a very straight leg overstriding in front of us. The difference between running and walking is when we run, we get that air and we circle, cycle those legs underneath us. That's what gives us a running gait. So suddenly air, providing it's got a forward trajectory in it, has now become your best friend because that's going to denote your stride length. Yeah, I think it's counterintuitive because you can look at, you know, that slow motion video of that graceful elite runner going down the home straightaway and see that a lot of that distance is really behind them. You know, their leg is when it's going through that cycle, you know, the swing phase is just enormous and it's it's lengthening their legs are lengthening out behind them and that's where that big distance comes from. It doesn't come from reaching out in front of you. It's really the cycling behind you. And I always thought that's uh, just a very graceful thing to watch, especially in slow motion. Oh, it's human art. I mean, it's beautiful. I'm very lucky to spend a lot of time still now in uh, in Ethiopia and, and Kenya and Uganda. And uh, the athletes there, you know, certainly in Kenya, up in the 10, uh, they they will run on, on a track day. They run around the track in eights. It's always in eights. And uh, the, the, the synchronization of the movement is incredible, absolutely incredible. You have eight athletes, you know, move, if you see them moving in the same way. It's just absolutely extraordinary. You don't have to sit there for hours trying to get the big money shot at any, any, any lap, you know, of, a, of any group. And you just get this. But you know what's absolutely fascinating? A lot of my work is now studying the power of the group and how we're powerful uh, as working together. And what's amazing about the African athletes, men and women, is, you know, they'll have these eights running around. But if I have two new people join the group, they'll be they'll, they'll, they'll sort of start off at the back. And you can see that they don't move the way that the others move because um, uh, they're new to the training camp. 
and uh, clearly they need to they need to change the way that they move. But they don't. It's not coached. It's not coached by a coach. What they will do is drop in to the eight. And so being surrounded by beautiful movement through the power of flow, by osmosis, their software, their brain, that's, re that's where the movement is really. That software is rewritten. So being by surrounded by beautiful movement, they start to move beautifully. And it's incredible. I mean, some of these eights have been running around the track for 30 years. The, the personnel just changes, but it's just a conveyor belt of beautiful movement. It's an amazing thing. You're reminding me of my college days, just being surrounded by runners who are much better than me. And, and I learned a lot from that, just being around them, watching them do workouts, hearing how they talk about running. And, you know, in sports psychology, they call this modeling. You can always model your behavior, how you think, your running form, even after, you know, more accomplished runners. And, you know, I recently had uh, Michael Crawley on the podcast. He wrote yeah, a book called okay. Out of Thin yeah, Air. Yeah. Yes. And it's just this deep dive into the running culture in Ethiopia. And I couldn't help but think about how in Ethiopia, running is such a more social sport. It's always done together in groups. And I think one of the big values in that is you get to see how other people run and you get to see how people who are better than you run so that you can better model that. And I think the other thing about uh, perhaps the East African runners that sets them apart is there is, a, I feel like, a very big focus on their movement. They do a lot of form drills and different skipping exercises. You know, you can go online and just find, you know, groups of 30, 50 African runners doing all kinds of different drills as a group together. And I'm curious, do you recommend uh, either certain drills or a certain way to think about form drills for, for distance runners who do want to use them? you know, maybe not just as a warm up before a workout, but to actually improve their form as well. Yeah, you know, it's a fascinating one. And you, you're right. And I think the, probably the Ethiopians do it more than the Kenyans. Um, and but actually in uh, in Kenya, in a 10 where I work a lot, um, I work with a, a coach called Brother Colm. I don't know if you've heard of Brother Colm. So he's, um, he's in his 70s now, but he is a um, Irish Irish guy went out to uh, attend in Kenya in the 70s as a, as a school teacher and, and now as coach you know it sort of started getting the youngsters running um coach David Radisha he's currently coaching Ronex Caputo the world record holder from 10k so he's coached some amazing runners and I'm very privileged to spend time with him and his and his um assistant coach Ian Caprono and and I and I and I watch them a lot, and you know they do go through these movements. But what we see as a drill, I think we we warm up because we we kind of feel as though we want to get that engine going and get the muscles warm. You know, it's a it's a it's a warm up for this uh, dynamic event that's about to start. But actually, theirs is very different. So I remember the first time I was on the track with Brother Colin, and there was about forty athletes. And they were running around the track doing all of these swaying movements and all in great rhythm and were doing all of these different types of movements. And then he blew a whistle. And some of them sat on the grass. A few of them actually went to sleep. A few took their trainers off and some went, got back on the coach. And I thought, wow, is that it? Is that, is that the training session? That can't be the training session. And I went over to him and asked him. He said, no, no. He said, that's just a warm up. And I said, 
okay, but if that's the warm-up, why are you letting them cool down? And he said, no, the warm-up isn't to get them warm as such. The warm-up is about get, relaxing them, getting them to relax the body. Look at them. They're asleep. How relaxed do you want them? They're super relaxed. And then after about five minutes, blew the whistle, up they get, and then they start to run with a relaxed body. So everything is done on a default of relaxation. And he would he would almost liken it to a long jumper. You know, if I was going to do a long jump, if I ran back 10 yards and then ran and jumped, I might jump so far. If I took a longer run up, I'd jump even further. So basically what he's saying is the more the relaxed the body is, the better you perform. So the drills aren't actually to teach the body a movement. They're to relax the body so that it can perform better. And and I really invite I was excited to hear that because I see movement as a software thing. If if you and I went out tomorrow and tried to change our movements, we wouldn't be teaching ourselves new muscle memory because the muscles don't really remember anything. You know, they might get strong at a task, but they're not really making decisions or remember anything. It's our very clever software that is telling the hardware, the muscles, what to do. So changing your movement is rewriting your software. Now, I believe that if you went out and just were concentrating on making a continued movement to try and teach a new part of your body a new trick, I don't think that really works because that part of the body doesn't remember it. And you could argue that's contaminating your software because running is a full body movement. So if you were running around just doing something with your right leg to teach it a new trick, I don't think you're really doing that. And actually, you could be contaminating your software, which is really geared up to see running as a full movement thing. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. And forgive the pun here, but is there tension uh, between doing drills for relaxation and then the desire to have more tension you know, in your fascial system to help you (laughs) with that energy return. I mean, you don't want to be so relaxed that you don't have any muscle tension, right? Well, there's a big difference between muscle tension and fascial tension. Fascial tension is like loading an elastic band and letting it ping. Tension in our muscles is tensing them and actually potentially um, decreasing our range of motion and, and, and they'll want more oxygen and calories and produce more lactate as they do it. So tension in your elastic system is good, but muscle tension, I don't think is so good. Certainly in running, there might be other sports where muscle tension is good, but in running, it's about relaxing and letting go. So I think when I see a beautiful runner and everyone everyone sees when they, when they watch the Africans, when I say, oh, it's so effortless, they're not trying, they're just gliding, then, you know, it's just effortless. Boy, they're trying hard, but they're not trying hard in the way that we think of trying hard, of gripping our hands and clenching our jaw and just trying hard. They're working really hard to keep this beautiful, elegant posture, that form, because that's what creates the propulsion. So they are trying hard, but they're trying hard to move beautifully. So there's a big, big difference. I think a lot of these lessons were taught to me subconsciously when I was doing a lot more middle distance training as a college athlete, because you sort of had to think this way to survive. You were trying to run, you know, at least for me, I was trying to run 80 to 90 miles a week. I had to run more efficiently to be able to do that. 
And with the workouts that I was doing, the guys that I was trying to chase on the track, I had to relax and make it look easy just in the interest of saving energy of, of, you know, psychologically being in a more relaxed state. So I didn't, you know, kind of freak out during the workout because they were just so grueling. And I feel like one of the ways that you teach yourself a lot of these skills is to put yourself in a training situation where you almost have to make these decisions, where you're forced to run more economically, where you're forced to think about your movement and, you know, to try to make it more efficient. Because if you don't, you might run into an injury or you're not going to be able to keep up with your friends who you'd really like to beat in the next race. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. And, you know, it's great. You have that track system and that college system. You know, we really don't have that at all. And so I think we lose out. We we lose out because we lose out on that power of the group thing um, and, and, that, and that competitive thing. And I think, you know, the ability for people to push each other hard but then be there to kind of put their arm around each other as well once they have pushed them hard to the point where it's it's really, really tough. I think that's very powerful. Really, really powerful thing. So I think that's a great a great system and I think you 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 guys benefit from that a lot. Yeah, for sure. And I and I think anybody who has the opportunity to uh run with a team in that kind of a setting should definitely take advantage of it. Uh, without a doubt. This has been such an interesting conversation and I've loved talking about how we think about our movement, how we think about our running form from this perspective. Um, but what have I missed or, or maybe something you'd like to add that we weren't able to discuss today that, you know, maybe you'd like to leave our listeners with? Well, I think, no, I think we've covered some, some really good fundamentals there. I think the one thing I would say to runners is think of running as, you know, I would treat it as a movement skill. Yeah. If you, you know, if you went to a yoga class or you, you know, you went to a martial arts class or you just wanted to learn, learn how to swim, you treat it as a skill. So start to think of running in that way. You know, it is a physical thing and it can be hard work. But yeah, just try and try and treat it as a movement skill. And if every mile that you run, you move well. You're actually breaking down your body and your body rebuilds itself back again. You know, we, we, we're always going through this amazing cycle of breaking the body down, building it back up. Doesn't matter how old you are, it is always happening. So if you move beautifully, you're going to break down your body. It's going to re-architect itself, allowing you to move even more beautifully tomorrow. And so if we can do that, because we tend to run around just trying to build up our engine all the time. If we can run around and, and think about moving well and re-architecting our body, it's what I call Darwinian fitness, fitness for the body to perform the task. If you start to think of it in that way, then it actually becomes really interesting and you can get a, take a real fascination in your movement and become better at that skill. And of course, any movement skill, you're never going to master it. You're always trying to get better and better at it. So I would really hope to try and inspire people to think of running as a sequence of elegant movements that you make regardless of how fast you are or how you know what, what how good you are um and uh think of it in that way and if you can buddy up and help each other get out there video each other um and and, and start taking interest in what you're doing i, I think you that you know that's a, that's a really powerful message Excellent, Shane. That is incredible. I think uh, this is probably one of those podcasts where folks need a pencil and a piece of paper for a lot of notes. But um, I'm really excited about all the work that you're doing. Where can people learn more about you and what you're doing? So, uh, so I'm my company is Running Reborn, 
Okay, so I'm the founder of Running Reborn. So at, at uh, runningreborn.com, you can you can find me there. Um, so there's that. That's the that's where the coaching site is, where all the videos and stuff is. Um, you, you can access the book through there as well, and it will keep you up to date with everything that I do. I also do I do face to face coaching, but I also do remote video analysis um, coaching. Um, all around the world on six continents. I work with runners all around the world on remote video analysis. So all that information is there. You can, you, you can, you can find what I'm up to there. You got to do Antarctica just so you can say all seven continents. Come on. I'm trying to find, there must, there must be somebody out there doing some research. Every year, well, not this year, sadly, but every year I spend time up in the Arctic uh, looking at movement on ice and snow. And so, you know, I've done a lot of research on, you know, good movement on snow and how to interact with those surfaces. I must be able to try and get some kind of kick in our house. You're right. <laughs> well, Shane, this has been great. Thank you so much for your time, your expertise, and uh, we've got to do a round two at some point. Uh, listen, I would love to, but it's been a pleasure. Thanks for the invite. And that wraps my discussion of proper running technique with Shane. You can connect with him at runningreborn.com or check out his book, The Lost Art of Running. And also don't miss our free form cues worksheet that you can get at strengthrunning.com slash cues. Finally, Another big shout out to our sponsor, ExoSkin. They're offering 20% off your order with code SR at checkout. I was introduced to this company a few months ago and have been impressed with the quality of the shorts and shirt that I've recently been wearing. They have this patented knitting technology that keeps you warm in the winter and cool in the summer. And I actually made the mistake of thinking their gear was only for winter, but it's actually been used in Death Valley races. The heat dissipation must be good. And it may also be because... Their gear is so versatile because their knitting technology reduces the risk of chafing, blisters, or hot spots. The big three. I'm also loving that they have powerful anti-odor properties, so my wife isn't complaining about my gear as much anymore. And they do this by using both copper and a synthetic treatment to reduce odor and friction and wick moisture. Plus, it's molecularly bonded. That is a very difficult word to say, but that means from my chemistry classes that I remember, <laughs> it's not going to come out in the wash. So those anti-odor properties are going to stay with the clothes for the life of the product. And my rep at Exoskin actually told me about a client of his who's worn the same pair of socks for three months without washing them. Just a few rinses with water every week, and they still don't smell. Now, I'm not sure if my testing will go to those lengths, so I'm just going to take their word for it. You can check them out at exoskin.us, and be sure to use code SR to save 20% on your order. That's exoskin.us to see all of their shirts, tights, socks, compression sleeves, and more. That's our episode for today. Thank you so much for being a part of this community, for subscribing, for sharing this podcast, and also for your reviews on Apple Music. Thank you, and we'll be in touch soon. 